0: Welcome to The Change Alchemist. Today's guest is Sylvia Galliser, global futurist, founder and CEO at Silicon Humanism, and board member at Grace Swan Guild. She's an enquirer of our future, conducting foresight research on the future of work, lifelong learning, the future of health, well-aging, and social interaction. She also investigates artificial general intelligence and AI ethics. She closely monitors the future of the mind and transhumanism. She has launched an Ethics and Philosophy of Futures think tank within the Association of Professional Futurists. This past year, she focused her research on mental health in the workplace and remote work environments, and on the home of the 2020s, developing a resilient housing framework. Welcome to the Change Alchemist, um, Sylvia. It's such a pleasure to have you.
1: Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about it.
0: Sylvia, you uh, started your career in strategy consulting, and here you are, um, a futurist, and you're a founder of Silicon Humanism, and you're an accomplished woman.
1: Tell us about where you got started very nice thank you so much for, for starting with this question so i grew up in france um, actually in the paris suburbs mm-hmm. uh, my mother was a teacher my dad was um, an engineer and a computer scientist mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i would say that one thing that characterized me that i was always thirsty for knowledge for science and technology but also for culture so it was difficult at first for me to choose just one career and and i actually pursued my my, my studies in different fields philosophy, then social science and sociology, economics. And I finally graduated from a HEC business school in management of arts and culture. And so for a while, I worked for different TV networks and radio networks as a production assistant on different show related to culture and technology. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, I landed a, a more stable job at Accenture
0: mm-hmm.
1: in strategy and product lounge telecommunication, media, and entertainment corporations by then. And what happened is that uh, in in 2005, I actually had the opportunity to go live in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So I left uh, left Paris by then to work for the French embassy Mm -hmm. uh, as a trade attaché specialized in audiovisual and new media. Mm -hmm. It was by then the start of the transition of media to digital. So media was really becoming something technological in itself. And after that experience, I continued for for actually 15 years to to support technology companies in the international developments as part of different governments agencies, but also startup accelerators. I actually created a company myself, which was called Big Bang Factory, where we would um, help company raise funding, do business development, find customers, adapt their products to the U.S. markets.
0: Fantastic that's quite a journey from Paris to San Francisco, but also spanning different jobs, different careers, different technologies. So what was your aha moment when you came here in 2005, you started your own company? What was going on in your head then about entrepreneurship, for example?
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So at first what happened is it was more about progressive change. I was learning about more and more technologies, working with companies spanning from educational platforms or employee engagement interfaces, medical devices, sleep technology. I enjoyed one which was about fault detection tools for the elderly, for example, to, to name a few of them. So At first it was just adding more and more knowledge of what was going on. And there was a variety of technology. And I didn't at first realize how much by just following these companies over 10, 15 years, I was actually following uh, how things were changing more at the systemic level. And so about four or five years ago, I I had this aha moment as you're calling it. And I started to, to notice that the way we were conducting business strategy was really narrow sided after all. We were focusing so much you know, on, on finding customers the everyday business or finding funding. And usually it, it's clo- like it's shorter cycles, it's two, three years horizon. And we ended up missing like the true signals of change, what we call signals of change in the futurist world, And we were losing the long-term vision. A lot of, of entrepreneurs I was working with were so much swamped in the everyday business and they were losing track of their initial mission or purpose, why they had created the company in the first place. And we also observed more and more misalignments within the team between the founders and how to integrate the new hires, how to integrate different ages, also different generations, our funders also themselves sometimes needed more therapy to realign um, the way they were thinking about business because one was just focused on raising funding and the other one was on the everyday business and, and they were not talking that much in one So, so that, that's by then actually that I decided to investigate foresight techniques to improve my strategy consulting practice. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got certified as an expert a foresight practitioner with the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto. And on a more personal note, it all made sense because I could uh, finally reconcile all these different components, my taste for science and technology, but also my interest in in social science and philosophy and ethics and my attraction to future thinking and even my creativity. Mm -hmm. That's why I do believe that futurism and strategic foresight is really a a profession that truly value multidisciplinarity.
0: Yeah, I think when you talk about futures thinking and interdisciplinary um, skills, it's obviously a field that is familiar to you, but not to a lot of people that are listening to this podcast. So in your own words, can you tell me why futures thinking is important and what got you interested enough to get certified? And, obviously it has to pay the bills too. So I want to understand the practical applications of futures thinking.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for asking all of that question, of course. So first of all, we, I think we need professional choice because we generally have a complex relationship with the future. Mm-hmm. We are attracted to it. I think in, in general, pop culture, we like science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're attracted to dreaming, to yes. imagining. It's natural, but we also do have a natural aversion at mm-hmm. the same time towards the future. And for most people, imagining the future actually provokes feelings of dislike, fear, or even anxiety. So why is that? At first, uh, you told me you like about uh, neuroscience, so there are actually like very physical re- reasons to this. Our brain is wired so that we are true adverse at first. That our primary reactions are towards short-term survival. The zone of the brain, which is activated when we think about us in the future, uh, is the same as when we think about a stranger. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, our future self is assimilated uh, with danger to us. So thinking the future is a consequence of civilization. It's not that much of a natural uh, element. It's more from the later layers of the brain. So in addition to that, there's an anthropological taboo linked to it, we say. Man plans, God laughs, and I think that illustrates quite well our life is unpredictable, and however hard we try to plan ahead, unexpected changes will inevitably occur, and so on. So we commonly assume that we should not try to know about our future destiny, that we would be cursed if we tried to do, to attempt to do so. And in, in popular fiction, most of the time, when humans engage in time troubles, they mess up with the timeline and then you have to fix human errors to put the timeline back. Or try. So all this to, to say that many ancient wisdom and meditation masters, they promote you to stay in the present moment, to focus on the present moment. And sometimes futurism is even, uh, it does even sound like, an occult science, mm-hmm. like uh, fortune-telling and so on. And, and I really want to underline that it's not the case. So I wanted to tell you first what it's not and try to, to now explain what it is. First of all, we can address all these critics. First, we can turn um, this anxiety-provoking characteristic into a strength by working on what we call stretching our time horizon, by making our minds, in you know, a way, more future-friendly. We can go beyond these natural reactions to make them more acceptable to us. And futurists have plenty of of, um, small exercise. I like to call them mental fitness exercise because we have the structural capacity to embrace the future, but we need to nurture it. Then we refer to the practice of foresight, of future thinking and futures study, always in plural, uh, meaning we don't predict what will happen for sure. We are not technically reading the future, so it's not palm reading or whatever. (laughs) Uh, It's really about studying the future on the basis that some aspect of the futures are already among us, not evenly distributed according to Gibson's definition, but present in the form of signals of the future or weak signals or signals of change, depending on the name you you them. And professional futurists are trained uh, to detect the signals and to analyze them. From there, what we try to do as futurists is to establish plausible scenarios. Mm -hmm. Not exactly what will happen for sure, but plausible scenarios in order to envision Mm -hmm. um, how we could live in those future scenarios and how we could act to seize opportunities in those possible futures. And for example, we love to use the four alternate future from team data. There's a growth scenario, a collapse scenario, a constraint scenario, and a transformation, transform or, or change. Can you, repeat, uh, can you repeat that framework? Who's it by? Uh, so, so this is by Jim Data. Okay. Yeah, and it's uh, four future scenarios or four alternative future.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And yeah, the first is really about growth. So it's mm-hmm. more of a continuous growth from the present, mm-hmm. closer to forecasting maybe. The second is about collapse and decline. Mm-hmm. the third is about constraints so it's limited growth it's within a certain amount of constraint and the fourth one which is usually the one that we are more excited about as futurists is about transformation okay, okay. and then from these possible futures we try to identify um, areas of opportunities and then we would retro plan from there what actions can we take Today, to prepare for this potential future, what milestones should we reach on the way? What resources should we invest in or develop to, uh, to, to reach this potential goals? So uh, w- one thing maybe I want to underline here, because I think it's really core in the profession. It's the difference between forecasting and prediction and foresight. So what we try to do is really to bring back that sense of agency. The mm-hmm. fact that we can act upon the future, it's not a fatalist approach. It's really an agency-oriented approach. And developing a futurist mindset is a practice toward developing our ability to take action, to build action plans, and to gain back that, that sense of agency over our own life, but also over our, um, over our collective destiny. And ultimately, she just thinking is also about investigating different perspectives. And so it's about flexibility and empathy.
0: So um, if we take a practical example, for example, where we're seeing trade wars, we're seeing what's happening with China and Taiwan, we're seeing what's happening even with the metaverse. Um, if I were to ask you, what wars can you see in the future? How would you, like like wars between countries, for example? Is that something you can use futures thinking for from a broad uh, macroeconomic standpoint?
1: Yes, absolutely. So some people are specializing in that field. I am not, but definitely there, there's a lot going on in that field trying to imagine what could be wars of the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I have personally a, a take on this um, and, and you were talking about the metaverse, and actually, I'm thinking more and more. What about uh, the wars of the futures are actually uh, mm-hmm. played absolutely virtually? Uh, they don't engage with uh, human lives, but it's more like a, a big uh, chess game between yes. two countries. And mm-hmm. at the time, like chess games, were actually a way for countries to 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 play a virtualized war. And I'm thinking more and more that uh, I hope, in a sense. That's a way to prove that your technology maybe is better to advance innovation without losing human life. And and do
0: you see signals uh, with statistical methods or how do you look at signals? Um,
1: Yeah, actually I like to distinguish really um, the approach, which is data driven with the approach that most futurists think of in terms of looking for signals. So yeah. the idea with, with signals of change, signals of the future or weak signals, that usually they are not in the data there. The idea is that we will catch them even before they translate into the data. trend. And so we develop other methods to actually uh, see those, those signals. And it's about understanding when something is actually diverging from the trend something that that's new that's happening even before an inflection point so i'm, I'm coming back to the definition um, that gibson gave about the future being ar- already there but not evenly distributed mm-hmm. um so the idea is when all these signals we gather them and we add them and we cluster them we extrapolate from there and we start to see change mm-hmm. um, but to gather them, you cannot send because there's usually a double force. They're the uh, present force, which is declining, and the future force, force which is just at the start and is um, increasing. So your signals will be at the beginning of this future force. And the way we we usually scan for them, it, it's a lot of observation, uh, reading the news, understanding when you feel reaction of people are changing. And I can give you an example with the mental health which Mm -hmm. is a topic I've been studying quite a lot these past two years Mm -hmm. Um, you got a few example in the athletic community of athletes now expressing how they have uh, mental health issues or concerns and how they retreated from competitions or from talking at interviews uh, like Naomi Osaka at uh, at the tennis tournaments and and I think what was interesting is first that they did, there were a few of them, there was also a in the US. So what what they did is first they express it, but then there's a reaction of the community towards it. And what was interesting, for example, with Naomi, was like, I think it was calm. the application calm decided to pay for the fines that she was fined with because she was not uh, willing to talk think, to, yeah. the, to the mm-hmm. press. And so that was the reaction of the community. The support that she got from doing that, I think, was a signal that this was really something different. And following that, a lot of other people started expressing about their mental health. And then it had also consequences at work. More and more uh, CEOs, managers, employees started to express also about their own concerns related to mental health and so on. So what's interesting is I consider what happened in the athletic world as the signal that hen then was showing us toward a larger uh, trend. And now I would say we are really uh, in the increasing part of the trend.
0: So if we take that example, obviously that's an example from sports. There are also examples from pop culture and um, Hollywood and the media, popular media. Now, do we look at pop culture to define trends? Because if you're not famous and you have a problem, it could go undetected. If you take my mental health, for for example.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would take another example with the Me Too movement and what happened with Harvey Weinstein. That's probably what was the first signal of what happened to open the voice of many women in the world and and not just women. So that was really the first step. And probably because it was more mediatized, more popular, they got the chance to be... um, more heard, because there was also business behind, like selling newspaper runs a topic. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it was probably also for good, because they were, in a way, leading the way and making it possible for them to express uh, express as well. But the idea also with trained futurists is that we don't listen just to pop culture. Probably these are signals that are more obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes we, we also observe more um, It can be a change of behavior, for example, of civility, a change in civility around you. You observe that people use to be more civil uh, in the way they drive on the roads or things like that. It doesn't need to be something that's in the news that's popular and so on. We also train to observe more intimate change.
0: No, that's good. And do you feel like um, there's agency in determining where we want the world to go? Because yes, the Me Too movement is important, but I feel like it's almost lopsided now that everyone uses it to make a point. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they take advantage of movements like this. <laughs> it's like anything in excess is, it just gets to a point where you don't have freedom of speech anymore.
1: Absolutely, and in, in each scenario, when we try to engage with scenarios in the future, we try to see what could be way to hack the futures, because there will always be some parties that will try to take advantage uh, or turn something good into something profitable for them yes. or turn something that can be good into business. And so we, we always try to, to envision what could be these possible consequences.
0: And you talked about the three pieces, right? Foresight, forecasting, and futures thinking. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about the differences between the three?
1: Yeah, sure. So, forecasting usually relies more on a quantitative um, um, data and quantitative models. And the idea is usually to predict, so to have the best idea of what the future can be. And it, it it rarely goes into different scenarios is usually the most probable future. Foresight, it's the name of the discipline. Um, it's similar to future studies. And we have, we also have strategic foresight, which is even more business oriented, it's foresight applied to business or business consulting. And the idea with foresight is, you know, exactly these five steps identifying what the current environment is, then identifying what the signals of change are, and, and building scenarios out of there, then identifying areas of opportunities in those scenarios and then backcasting uh, to produce uh, this action plan towards the futures. And to do that, we always push our mind to go in the in these four types of scenarios. Uh, Sometimes there are other technology other methodology, sorry, but there's always these ideas that we try to see different futures, so mm-hmm. not just one. And it's maybe less uh, quantitative-based, but some futurists really are also uh, quantitative-based yes. as it depends. And finally, future thinking, it's really something that everybody can develop. It's more like the practice. Mm-hmm. It's not that much the discipline as the everyday practice that everybody is doing, actually, when they think about mm-hmm. the future. So, futurizing is in a sense a skill that uh, futurists have. And when I say futurist, I realize that it's another word about it. Futurist is probably closer to foresight.
0: Yeah. So, it's a pretty vast field depending on um, where your specialization is. It could be in business, or it can be in economics, or it can be with products too. You can determine whether there's a good product market fit based on alternative scenarios.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I like to say that there are many two career paths to become a futurist. Now, I think young people really have uh, the the chance and the opportunity to have programs in university to become futurists already uh, at at 20s, in their 20s. And then there's a second career path, which was actually my case. I was first a strategy consultant and did that for for quite a, a few years, and then only five years ago, I really became a full, full-time futurist by becoming becoming a certified and so on. But my training was first in business and strategy. So it really varies. But there are a lot of connections it with business, with social science, sometimes with psychologists also are interested in the practice. So it can be... Multidisciplinary
0: once again. Yeah. Uh, very exciting times for people that are exploring alternative uh, careers. And uh, your example is uh, a nice, nice example because pe- people can branch off into wherever they are and pivot as well from consulting to even something like what you're doing, uh, which kind of brings me to the question of about Silicon Humanism. You're a founder at Silicon Humanism after an established career path. Now you're doing something totally different. Tell us a little bit about silicon humanism.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for asking. Yeah, so indeed, as I said about five years ago, I started already to feel that I needed to extend my practice as a consultant. So the concept of silicon humanism emerged around um, 2015 as this natural extension mm-hmm. of my work as a strategy consultant for technology companies, but also as a researcher in humanities and uh, future studies. So the investigation field of silicon humanism covers the intersection of technology on one end and humanism as well as the potential implications of living in a technology-driven world on our humankind and our social. So Silicon Humanism really defines itself as a global and a holistic approach. It's not just technology, and it's not just humanities, it's this intersection. So it's really inherently pluridisciplinary, based on the conviction that by crossing these different perspectives and methodologies, we will enrich our thought processes and we will limit biases. So we incorporate a deep understanding um, of science and technology, but also historical perspectives, sociological methods, anthropological fieldwork, and philosophical and ethical examination as well. And because of my focus on mental health, I also try to include psychology and mental health concepts. And then in addition to that, we also use foresight tools future studies, as well as market intelligence, economic analysis, and business strategy. So it's really something that we try um, to have very complete. And then the second aspect is the various topics we address, we cover, because this can be applied to anything from the future of work to business, education, health, mental health. Um, I also work a lot on on, on well-aging. Which is really my, my sweet spot. I'm interested into well-being as we talk about life extension and aging. But you can apply it to consumption, retail, home life, which is another topic, earth life, ocean life, space life, the future of the mind, and so on. So all of these areas are dramatically uh, morphing now under technological advancements and societal mutations. So in all those instances silicon humanism questions our notion of humanity at times where technologies tend to drive more and more our human life and maybe uh, if i may as another it's really a call to action Mm -hmm. it's not something static and once again i want to put back that sense of agency at the center because uh, with silicon humanism we want to replace the human component at the core of the technological advancement and ask ourselves how we can design Uh, futures that integrate with our human specificities and that value human life without damaging our environment. So ethics are continuous underlying um, elements of our initiative.
0: And I love the word silicon and humanism together because on the one hand, you have AI and automation. On the other hand, you have people. And with exponential technology, there's the fear that a, the robots might take over, but B, there's also a deeper question about if this falls into the wrong hands, the AI could actually harm us. So how do you put humanism at the center of, of whatever we do? And I think um, thinking deeply about many of the things you mentioned, whether it's mental health, aging, and even the future of smart cities, people keep talking about it. I know there was a lot of talk around that and it's i think become quiet now but space that's an area that seems to be moving quicker than we thought so uh, living in space in a different on a different planet would be very different than living here so i would imagine there's people that are doing futures thinking on that on on that front too
1: yeah absolutely and if i may because I- uh, I was explaining how I focus on mental health. I, I'm actually really interested in to seeing how we humans can live on another planet. Yes. Mental health. Because are we made to be Earthling? How can we adapt to the planet? Will we miss our planet? And after two, three generations, will we still have a sense of what was life on Earth? Will we miss the ocean, the waves, and so on? I'm really interested in to seeing that over. Um, generations, like what will happen after a while in terms of mental health, I think is, is really uh, fascinating.
0: Or will they morph into a different organism that's not really uh, similar to you and me, but adapted to a different world? Science, right. to, to different
1: branches. Yeah. And and uh, has there been work other than science fiction in this? I think NASA is, is working a lot on this topic, but probably other organisms as well.
0: Okay, good, good. And, this is a future of work podcast. So, if we want to go back to the future and agency, and how do you think that we can be part of driving the future of work? How do you think it it needs to evolve?
1: Absolutely, great question. Because of what happened these past two years, my angle on the future of work is is really related to remote work. Mm -hmm. Um, So first of all, maybe about remote work versus the workplace. So what we observe is this consensus towards an hybrid model with probably a variable split in the number of work days at the office versus work from home. But really remote work was already very well adopted in many companies in California. In the areas where I'm studying it, it's really anchored. other things we observe is really that smaller companies are also trying now to attract talents while big corporations don't have so much control over their workforce in remote context. So it's also an opportunity for smaller business to be able to hire workforce that they were not able to, to hire before. We've heard also about some people actually exercising two jobs at the same time. So Yes,
0: that was not. an article in New York Times. That
1: was quite surprising. Yeah, exactly. And I can't imagine our, um, the impact on mental health when you try to, to manage all this at the same time, but because of, of the big crisis, some people didn't have um, other choice. We also see a lot um, around the great resignation and how people are trying to look for jobs that are more purpose-oriented. And and even the numbers in September and October, it shows that this great resignation is actually accelerating. Where a few months ago, we were wondering if it was just a fad or something. And also, we see that big companies are trying now to address this this disengagement issue with solutions, such as the hub and spoke model with one main office and satellite offices in remote places so that people uh, can live further from urban areas and so on. We also heard about quite bad PR, I would say, with some companies considering decreasing the salary of remote workers. Yes. Uh, even at Google, <laughs> which I believe is counterproductive and really not helping with the main issue. So the increase in anxiety towards going back to the workplace and so on. So once again, I I see that with this angle, this approach of global mental health crisis, which often has been described as a pandemic within a pandemic. And I would say that after a decade where I feel the future of work, we had scenarios towards more and more task-oriented jobs, like you could deal with different small task-oriented like type work is helping you with that type of, of way of, of working you had ride hailing gigs you had a lot of flexible freelance job and everything on like this was on the rise well suddenly so it seems that many people are now looking for something more stable mm-hmm. uh, because they had enough of challenge with the with the pandemic and now they are looking for a more balanced um, more, more of a work-life balance more comfort as well and what's interesting i think is that. All this in terms of behaviors is reflected also in what happened in technology and application, HR application. Be it about our corporations buy this application, purchase this application, but also in the funding of these applications. And for a while, and I studied it before the pandemic, um, what happened is that uh, more and more of engagement employee applications were trying to go up. Mm-hmm. Um the master hierarchy of needs, which is a model I, I like to introduce at this point to explain what's happening. So we, we were going from maybe more administrative tools, ERP or HIRS, which were mostly oriented to deal with the wages or, or that type of topic. Then we went up to social belonging and corporate culture tools. You had office vibe, supermood, child IQ, and so on. Then There was a development of the improved performance management systems, including colleagues feedback. So we are more at the S team level of the pyramid. You had lattice uh, to get uh, impressed and so on. And finally, what happened just three, four years ago, that more and more, the applications were trying to add features towards the top of the pyramid, uh, really about peer recognition, employee empowerment, happiness at work, peer-to-peer review. And and it it was really about being self-realized at work. So that I I, I studied over 10 years and really we had this thing that this is where we were going to. And then the pandemic happened and and I, I studied again like the funding, which which startups were funded, which tools were funded. Um, or were acquired and what happened is that the application that were most successful these past two years were about basic communication, were about belonging. There's an application, TeamFlow, which is purely about socialization in your virtual office mm-hmm. uh, that got two two rounds of funding in just six months. I think in the 30, uh, 30 million, I really felt that now we are climbing down the pyramid towards security at work, safety at work, uh, feeling that your employer is taking care of you. Mm-hmm. And the, the challenge here, I guess you're asking what can we do and what could be the action is that there's, there's both awareness and action towards taking care of your employee when they are not physically present. And I have personally advocated advocated for what I call a new care act at home <laughs> at work at home, sorry, which I think rely on the different component. First, that business leaders now need to go beyond old-fashioned paternalism. And they need to sign up for this redesigned care act towards their workforce, which is better suited for this new context of increased remote work. Also, mental health isn't um, a shameful private matter anymore. It's really something collective. It's more of a society concern and, and people start really, uh, getting, um, out of the mental health school. they express about it. They open up about it. And, and as I was saying, we can, we could first witness it in the sport competition work at first, and now it's really going, um, in all the spheres of society. So, what I do believe as part of this, of this, uh, thought is that business leaders hold a social responsibility towards their collaborators. The accountability is, is collective. It's not just everyone needs to go see their doctor. It's something collective that we need to take into account as a, as a social and collective concern. And to make it work, trust is a big piece of this mm-hmm. process because it's a key to a virtuous Uh, cycle of motivation and productivity at home. A lack of trust can turn this relationship into a vicious circle and actually hinder productivity. So that means that having responsible leaders who can take care instead of track, uh, who can focus on well-being instead of surveillance, who can show that they truly care that they are themselves role models that they show empathy and expose their own vulnerability will be a big part of uh, making the workplace uh, more safe and more secure and more comfortable for their police to go back.
0: I agree with that I agree with that and I think given that we have no boundary between the home and the office anymore that the work-life balance has become impossible especially for younger mothers and uh, people that um, have other responsibilities so how do you see that sort of converge uh, the future of home and the future of work converge as a as a composite
1: mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad you, you asked that question because of uh, the, the future of the home um, has been really my, my focus uh, this, this past year and developed a lot of, of work around this. And as I studied the future of the home, I actually considered work as one among other components uh, that are, have been transferred to mm-hmm. the home. So I developed a model named the Xing From Home uh, mm-hmm. Framework to think about these home transformations and activities that we use to perform outside the home has been mostly conducted from home. And it's not just work, it's also education, Mm -hmm. entertainment, exercising, shopping, befriending, Mm -hmm. dating, and so on. And all this was accompanied, was helped with the support of online technologies. Additions to that, also behaviors that are casual parts of the home life have been intensified, sometimes to a point of rupture, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: sometimes to a point of exaltation, such as caring for each other or fighting with each other. So what interested me as I studied the future of the home was to focus both on the structures, so the home with its physical components, and also what I call the intangibles. So home life itself, activities conducted within the home environment and mental health among those intangibles. So to conduct that, that analysis, what I did is I, I mapped the future of the home along two dimensions. Mm-hmm one being like the threat dimension is the threat coming from outside such as a pandemic or social chaos economic crisis ecological catastrophe and so on or war we were talking about war or is the threat coming from inside the home Mm. Uh, domestic violence physical or verbal abuse toxic work from home environment or loneliness for many so the second dimension would be the reaction dimension how do people and how does the home present a fragility or resilient reaction to the threat? Mm -hmm. So to make it short out of this, we built a quadrant and we built four archetypes of future home, one being the toxic home, one being the bunker homes, one being the Tetris home, where you reorganize things in a limited space Mm -hmm. uh, to deal with all the mental health and and activities from home aspects, and one being what we hope is the transformation scenario, the safe haven, like living in a home, uh, which allows you to to be comfortable and to climb up the pyramid um, of needs, uh, but also to be comfortable going outside and coming back to your home, like not being afraid of the exterior world like in a banker house right now.
0: <laughs> and I think it's it's probably um, aspirational to to look for a transformational home, but I think the Tetris could be a good compromise.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the Tetris home is a good uh, short-term mm. reaction. It's probably what most of us have been doing during the pandemic. It's reorganizing space, resources, time, adapting different equipments according to different needs from people who need to study, to work, to, to do different activities, in addition to the regular home course and so on. But this is not such a sustainable solution. So in some cases it can lead uh, to a safe haven. If you reorganize your home with good upgrade mm-hmm. and you can uh, repurpose the room, the room so that everybody can find their, their, okay. place, mm-hmm. their space or it can lead to toxic homes, mm-hmm. toxic home as well. When there's not, when space is really limited, people are there all day long. There's an accumulation of noises, physical presences, voices, loud, um, sometimes no respect for intimacy, and that can make, lead to to the toxic home. And, and why I wanted to focus on this and not just on the transformational aspect is that toxic homes were unfortunately a large part of the global stock of homes, and it has been increased during the pandemic because the threshold has been lowered, actually because more and more activities were stuck within the same place as some homes just exploded in terms of co-living. So to bring awareness around these topics, for example, what we do as futurists, we worked on building some short fictions, audio fictions, imagining there would be a hotline and how people could try to reach out to find some resources as to how to survive within such environments. So this is an example of- Very interesting,
0: very interesting work. And uh, given that uh, we live in California and where real estate is at a premium, it becomes more important to find those secret spaces that you can be yourself and not have intrusion of any kind. (laughs) Thank you for that. And you're really accomplished. You've done a lot of work. Tell us your superpower.
1: (laughs) My superpower, I certainly hope I'm able to time travel, at least mentally, either go back uh, to the past, but also traveling to the future and back.
0: That's great. Any uh, guilty pleasures that you have that, that have accelerated during the pandemic?
1: (laughs) So I don't drink wine, but I drink a lot of matcha.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Any books that you um, have found useful and inspirational in your journey?
1: Yeah, absolutely if I may share two authors I really enjoy. So one is nonfiction, mm-hmm. and we were talking about space and so on. Um, so most book by Michio Kaku, which is both a physicist and a futurist. I, I love it. it's all about the future of the mind, the future of travel to space and so on. So he has a science-based approach to the future. So he's always gouging what's his Physically possible or not, be it about uh, space travel, transhumanism, changing our body and mind. So that's my nonfiction number one. And my my fiction number one is uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, with especially two future-oriented books, Never Let Me Go about clones serving as organ donors to their original models. And the latest one, which is Clara and the Sun, about yes. friends serving the need uh, of sick children in the context. What of- a
0: wonderful writer, I love his work, yes.
1: <laughs> and where can people find you? So I'm really active on LinkedIn. So if you want to reach out to me, uh, we have a page, Silicon Humanism, or you can reach out to, to me, Sylvia Galliser, directly. And yeah, I certainly hope we engage in such a future-oriented conversation, which I love. And I, if I can, I will I will help you stretch your mind uh, so that you can. Is
0: there one piece of advice you want to give people that are thinking of a career change or embarking um, on a career that has to do with futures thinking or foresight? What would that be?
1: Mm-hmm. I love to say that the human brain is really the best time travel machine to come back to this topic uh, but this is a skill we need to develop as i mentioned earlier there are some mental fitness exercises that we can conduct and i would suggest you add that to your uh, fitness routine now you have also your mental stretching routine and there are some really fun exercises to do like what we call predicting the past think about a decision you made in the past but wonder what if I had made it differently so we call that counterfactual memory and you have the opposite which is called remembering the future and it's about counterfactual prospection you think about something that could possibly happen in the future even if it has uh, never happened before. You imagine it vividly with your uh, five senses. How uh, will it smell? How uh, will it look? How uh, will it will it sound and touch? How uh, will we interact uh, with technology in the future? And the last one I really love is called uh, 500 five hundred Ways Anything Could Be Different." So you can take any topic and you imagine it 100 ways. I don't know, birthday could be different, or wedding could be different, or work could be different.
0: I love that. I love that and. Are these exercises documented somewhere? I can add it to my show notes. Yeah. Thank you, Sylvia. It was so wonderful to have you and I look forward to speaking again in the future.
1: Thank you, Shobana. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me today.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Change Alchemist with Sylvia Galliser. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tune in next week, tell a friend, and be sure to catch previous episodes of The Change Alchemist wherever you get your podcasts.